I mentioned with the reading of Christina Rossetti that she said her goblin market meant nothing profound. It was more or less just a story. Was she right? You know, so many people love the hope and faith in the Beatles song, Imagine. But John Lennon said it was, quote, practically the communist manifesto. Have we all been wrong? Baha Men's song, Who Let the Dogs Out, is actually about badly behaved men ruining everything by treating women as objects. But this is the same group that made a song for the video with literal dogs running around. So who's to blame for that misinterpretation? Is The Lord of the Rings an allegory for modern warfare? Yes! What is all this meaning-making about? What people like me do to literature? Can't we, you know, just, you know, ask the author what they meant and be done with it? We want to know what a work means, so we figure, ask the author. The author must have the ultimate knowledge, the single idea of the text. Enter a term that's famous in literary theory, the intentional fallacy. It's an argument from early on in literary theory from our new critical or modernist school, Wimsett and Beardsley and Eliot, a bunch of others from around 80 to 100 years ago. Now, a fallacy is a bad or broken argument, and intention is what the author means. So, asking what the author meant about a work is, for many, a bad idea, a broken argument. That's the intentional fallacy. Our goal to find meaning is based on an idea which we need to call into question, that the author knows. But writers Wimsett and Beardsley say no. Why would they? Well, they had a few points. They said that the intention of the author is, quote, neither available nor desirable as a standard for judgment. Therefore, we can't ask Kate Chopin what the story of an hour means because she's no longer with us. We shouldn't want to ask her in order to decide the value and meaning of the story. Now, Wimsett and Beardsley agree a poem does not come into existence by accident. It is crafted by someone, but we can't confuse the cause of a poem or story with our judgment of the poem's meaning. Just because someone decided to create a story doesn't mean that the story came out the way they wanted it to. Chopin wrote the story with an idea, but the writing of something and the reading of it are two different acts. Wimsett and Beardsley also asked how the critic expects to get an answer to the question about intention. What can we find out about Chopin's intent? How could we decide? Do we, what, read all her diaries? Look for interviews? Assume that someone who is a widow wants out of marriage? As we said in an earlier episode, Chopin's marriage seemed pretty healthy. And perhaps most infamously, Wimsett and Beardsley said that judging a poem is, quote, like judging a pudding or a machine. One demands that it works. If the story of an hour is written well and we read it carefully, we can see its meaning. It's working as a story. Just like a pudding tastes good if it's well-made, and a machine functions without any errors. Now, there's more that they argued in their essay of 1946, but that's the gist of it. The poem 
belongs to the public. And by that, they mean that once the story is written, once the poem is written, out into the world it goes. And now it's for us, the readers, to make sense of it. Now, I'm not saying that I agree with Wimsett and Beardsley, but they set off quite a storm in 1946 when they wrote this, and the argument is still going on. But from my view, we do have a real problem in trying to find out what an author's intention is. And I'm going to go a bit further still than Wimsett and Beardsley here. Now, first, I agree, most authors are dead, and eventually all of them will die, so we can't quiz them about what their works meant. Eh, please don't ask about seances, okay? What they left us is historical artifacts. Okay, let's study those. Now, we know studying history is challenging. We get fragments there are misinterpretations. We put things together. We assess and reassess. Basically, we interpret something else to create an interpretation. We begin basing interpretations on other interpretations. I know, I know. Maybe this is all we ever do. But let's at least admit that it's not a stable method for determining meaning. Next, I got to say, some authors don't know what they've written. They have either written more than they thought, you know, ideas come out that they were only partly conscious of or ones that they didn't even notice at all. Maybe Rossetti would say, well, I didn't know having young girls talk to strange men in the woods who tempt them with fruit might sound like some common patterns we know. Maybe she would say that. In which case, it's not that the meaning isn't there. It's just that she didn't notice. Or maybe a writer has written something less than they thought. Delusions of grandeur. I remember back in 1988, a horror film, an indie horror film called The Carrier, um, was described by its director as the Citizen Kane of horror. Yeah. Have you heard of the film? Not most of us. Or it's also possible that an author has written something different from what they thought. By this, I mean that many even most readers think the work means something else because they read the text and that's what the text tells them. Think of John Lennon and the Baha men. But to go further still, some writers lie. They're frauds. They don't tell us the truth about their intention. The poet may change his mind or mood. He may have intended one thing and done another and then rationalized what he did. Greg Mortensen, for instance, lied about stories in Three Cups of Tea, the building of schools in Afghanistan. J.K. Rowling invented an author named Robert Galbraith who answered interview questions by mail and everything. More on that little caper in a bit. And sometimes the fraud or lie is constructed in the business of text production. Earlier writers, especially, were subject to multiple revisions by scribes, by printers, by editors... Whose intention are we looking for then? How many times was the Iliad or the Odyssey told after the writer's death before someone finally wrote it down? How many different writings were there? We, by the way, call that writer Homer, but do we even know that such a dude was out there? And finally, I need to point out that some meanings shift over time. Maybe Goblin Market was really just a simple tale for children about loyal sisters. But it's hard for us to read it now without feeling some of that sensuousness and suggestiveness in its language. 
Maybe Chopin didn't think that Louise Millard was a bird in a gilded cage. How could she? The song hadn't been written yet. But now that we have the song, so... isn't she? Even TV shows like Seinfeld don't age well. Now, if you don't believe this, then why do you find things funny that your parents don't? And vice versa. Meanings shift over time. So we have a problem. We can't be certain that we can ever know the author's intent, or that we can trust it if we found it. But a second argument is important, also from Wimsett and Beardsley, a variation on these arguments, and it goes like this. If the meaning is in the text, we'll find it there, in the text. If the author had an idea, and it's not found in that text, then the author is delusional. They didn't put it there. If the author had an idea, and it's in the text, oh, we'll find it anyway. Therefore, we don't need the author at all. What do we do if we found Chopin's diary and she said, yes, you see, Louise Millard was a space alien who had been captured by this businessman, and when she was looking out the window like E.T., well, you laugh, but first of all, you laugh because the history is a fraud. But second of all, why you know it is a fraud? You know it's a fraud because that's not in the text. Okay, maybe we don't like all this, but we get it. We're not alone here. There are still a lot of people who are out there defending author's intention. School teachers, for one, who spend a lot of time telling us that what Edgar Allan Poe used opium and had a thing for his little cousin. Neither of these points, by the way, are inarguably true, but that's another story. Theorist Christopher Ricks fears that authors are gone forever and no text is left to have meaning. Edie Hirsch, who got pretty popular in the 1980s with his book Cultural Literacy, said that we can't really know the author's intentions. He understands. We have to guess. But we need to know them in order to know what a work means. What, really, dude? All right, if I write a note, and my note I send to you says, I'm going to meet you on November 10th, but I really meant November 11th, I got the date wrong, how can you trust that the text and intention match? Your note says November 10th, so you're going to meet me then. I meant November 11th. Text and intention don't always match. What a text says, it says. The author's not around to defend or explain it. Even Plato in the Phaedrus compared writing to a painting. It sits passively. Something written down as silent, says Plato. Well, this is why he preferred dialogue. Famous theorist Northrop Fry tried to get around this issue, too. Intent, he said, is kind of a direct aim and shoot. It's suitable for essays, perhaps, but not poetry, which is art. The goal of art is not a direct statement, per se. Art is about morality, truth, beauty, things like that. The poet doesn't always aim for these things. Sometimes it's more, he says, the, quote, inner verbal strength. So in other words, go ahead and seek intention when you are reading the newspaper and listening to arguments. But let's leave art alone. It's, um, fuzzier. Poet Reginald Shepard argued the issue this way. In Keats's words, the poet is no one. 
Yes, as readers, we need to understand historical references, the literary, cultural, historical allusions a poet uses, but that's not the same thing as getting into the poet's head, knowing intention. We need to know language, but we can't know intention. In this way, the meanings of a poem can change because words shift across time, but a poet's intentions do not. The intentions are locked in history, moving further and further away from us. What happens, for instance, if someday a fruit offered to an innocent girl no longer signals temptation? In some parts of early Russia, for instance, the offer might have been an egg. Does it still matter, then, what Rossetti intended, if fruits don't symbolize temptation? Shepard agreed that the act of writing and the act of reading are different. The importance of intention to the writer and to the reader are also different. Look, we want to honor the artist and their creation, and it's important to remember that we can still do that, and we cannot worry over much about intention. Honor the spark, the creative spirit that happened when the work was created. We applaud the artist for their work. What we then do with that work is different. But Shepard makes one more point that he finds in Wimsett and Beardsley that makes this all a bit more complicated still. It kind of removes that binary of intent, no intent. They say, the internal meaning of a poem is public. That is, that the poem, its text, means what it means, and it goes out into the world, and that's what we have. The external meaning are factors beyond the text, like author intention. That's something different. But then he says, there are semi-public and semi-private meanings. Let's suppose that Chopin had trouble getting her stories printed because of the scandalous ideas. Doesn't this compel us a bit to find things in her works that hide or mask those ideas? Learning some of that history can put us on a track to reading that might help. Disney's movie Frozen flashed us a view of a gay couple, for instance, in 2013. A long, long time to wait to move past heteronormative views. But does this also ask us to look harder at the rest of the movie? What about Elsa? Huh. No boyfriend girl? What's up with that? Well, the LGBTQ community begins to read Elsa as a queer icon. And are they wrong? Did the Disney writers in 2013 intend to this? Oh, and if you haven't heard, in 2021, Disney just promised us that Frozen 3 will give Elsa a romantic girlfriend. So what is internal and external here? What is public and private about this text? Enter in 1982 Michaels and Knapp, who wrote the controversial essay Against Theory. They come at this home, the place Plato sits, basically, dialogue a school of thought called speech act theory. They are interested in how we form meaning as we talk with one another. But their argument is simple enough. Just because it's written down, that doesn't mean that language is as silent and alone as Plato thought. Intention is always part of speech, period. Is it language if it has no intention? No. It's random marks. Therefore, this whole idea of intentional fallacy is ridiculous. Like Wimsett and Beardsley said, writing isn't caused by accident, it's caused by people. 
And just because it's hard to find meaning through intent, that doesn't mean we shouldn't. First, what is the poem if not an object with intention in it? Writers subjectively have an idea they feel they want to communicate. But also, what is the act of reading the poem, except a subjective application of knowledge? In other words, readers, subjectively, have ways of thinking that they want to use to make meaning. This is getting messy. Rachel Fern Flores says there is always an intention in the background, implicit. See, the real issue that we should be arguing, she says, is a question of our inability to discover intention. Neither authors nor readers can be certain of intention. But just because it's difficult to find doesn't mean it's unimportant. Adina Rosemarin and others piled on, arguing back and forth on what levels of intention we might allow. Rosemarin said that Michaels and Knapp are not against theory at all. They've misread what theorists do. Theorists, they look for grounds in meaning-making, not determine what something means. We don't need confrontations with poems and authors. We need dialogues, conversations with each other, readers and texts and all to see how we build meaning, talking about, talking about. Now look, it's not my job then to dig up some facts and ideas from history in order to prove that my meaning is correct. And it's not my job to tell you which Kate Chopin meaning is correct. It is, however, important that we understand how and why we make the meanings we do. Phew. Yeah, you know, we could go back and forth like this with arguments and syllogisms forever. And it's beginning to sound more like a poisoning scene from The Princess Bride than getting us towards meaning. You. But you've also bested my Spaniard, which means you must have studied. And in studying, you must have learned that man is mortal. So you would have put the poison as far from yourself as possible so I can clearly not choose the wine in front of me. So where does this all shake out, this intentional fallacy? And what should we do with it? As I said earlier, authorial statements and contexts might let us know if we're on a good track. Sometimes works should not be seen in isolation, but looked at as a whole or a larger set of works. Should we have read the story of an hour and discussed it without talking about Chopin's novel, The Awakening, her larger answering work to many of our questions? Seems odd. So context and authors help, but mostly let's be thinking about what it means to have an expectation from an author. It suggests that we believe these things, that a work has a single meaning that could be found, identified, named as the intention. You know, what the author was trying to say is that kind of thing. It suggests that the meaning the author has trumps all the other interpretations the author knows best, no matter what you think you found in the book. It suggests that the story or poem has no importance to our own time and circumstances only to the moment and intention when the author created it. It's really hard to ignore these problems, isn't it? Roland Barth, in 1977, wrote a famous piece called The Death of the Author. And there's a lot to be said about his essay another time, but I want to repeat his distinction. The death of the author does not mean the same thing as the death of the writer. He meant the death of, in French, auteur, the authority for meaning. He meant that the author, once the work is created, no longer has control 
over the words. Oh, the writer. The writer dies for sure. We established that, remember? Go ahead and talk to a writer if you want to. Sure. Ask Rossetti or Frost or Rowling what they meant by, you know, and they'll tell you that it meant something or it meant nothing. But despite lawsuits by Rowling and George Lucas for, and others for control of their works, they no longer have the authority over what we do with them. Thomas Foster asks a similar question. Don't we already spend a bit too much time giving the author some kind of divine power when asking these questions? Remember, J.K. Rowling once wrote as Robert Galbraith secretly. Now, when Galbraith's first story came out, it, it was pretty well written, but it wasn't selling well at all. But then we discovered that Galbraith was really rolling, and suddenly everyone had to buy the book. Now, this book was not better or worse than before. So what gives? A reader's obligation, Foster says, is to the text, not to the writer. Be a fan of the book, of the story, of the poem, not the writer carte blanche. For me, though, I'd like us to think about why we're all caught up in a lot of these questions anyway. We want to know how to find the meaning in the works we read. Good. But this is sometimes a scary, even intimidating thing to do. To read aesthetically for the richer meaning of a work, it means putting together ideas and images in our own heads, doing it ourselves. It's so frightening. We are willing to look anywhere else for reassurance that we are on the right track. We ask our teachers. We look it up on Schmoop. We consult YouTube University. But we don't trust our own ideas. No wonder we want so badly to be able to know author's intent. It lets us off the hook. All of this. All of this. It's really about where the meaning is and whether readers are trusting themselves to find it. We need to take ownership of our reading. Whether or not we can trust intentionality, we don't need to. Is Goblin Market pornographic? You tell me. Is Louise Millard victorious or foolish? Well, how do you read it? Is Dumbledore gay? Why ask Rowling? We have her books. Now we're about to turn our attention to some medieval poetry. And among other things, we'll talk about this author issue in a very different way. Now, go read something. <laughs> 